Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, as we continue our exposition of the Gospel according to Luke. And in this portion, as you are likely aware if you've been with us, Jesus Christ continues his ethical teachings for his disciples, having drawn them into the kingdom of God. How now must they live as his disciples? That is what he is teaching them. And just for those of us who may have forgotten, for we are quick to forget such things, uh, we understand that these ethical teachings are not the way of salvation, but they are the fruit of a heart saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These are the outworkings of a man or a woman or a child who has come to the Lord Jesus for salvation. And these are those who have their citizenship in heaven. Well, with that then, let us consider verses 39 this, afternoon, uh, this morning, verses 39 through um, 45. And please give your attention now once again to the reading of God's holy word. And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but every one that is perfect shall be as his master. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let us now pray for the preaching. O Father, our God, we come now to the preaching of your holy word, and we confess, Father, that the man who has come now to preach, the man who is a teacher in the church, himself is a man who is in need of a Savior. He is not the Christ, but he is called to draw men to Christ. And so in his flesh, this man can do none of that. So we pray now, O God, for your Holy Spirit's help, that the preacher now would preach up Jesus, and that the preacher would point them all to the will of God found in the word of God. Help the preacher decrease that Jesus Christ may increase. We pray as well for this congregation that you would help them uh, by giving your spirit to them, that they would hear the words of life and warmly embrace them. And so, Father, to that end, we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this now in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, you have likely heard this saying, which is attributed to Robert Murray McShane. 
that my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. I say attributed because no one's been able to actually chase that down to him, though it sounds very much like something that the man would say. And we often ask our ministerial candidates when they are examined at Presbytery, what do you think of the saying? And many of them are often troubled by it. They say, is our greatest need, is my people's greatest need, not Jesus Christ? And of course, the answer is yes. McShane himself was famous in saying, for every look at yourself, take ten looks to Jesus. Yes, our people's greatest need is Jesus. And But that said, in the right context, understanding my people's greatest need is my personal holiness is good and proper. Why might a godly minister say such a thing? Because it is a very biblical concept, and it is found in verse 40. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master or teacher. This is an important concept out of the word of God. Uh, Brethren, here is the thing. Rarely, and this is the sad truth, rarely do Christians outdo their teachers. Rarely do they outdo the ones who teach them the word of God. And so what Jesus Christ will have you do is carefully consider the kind of man that you would have lead you. What you must ask is, is is this man one that I would want to be like? Not just in his learning, but also in his character. Because in our context, our text is entirely about Christian graces. And when you choose men to be your leaders, you need to choose those that you would like to be like, that there is something of Christ in them, that there is a savor of Jesus Christ all about them. For as that man is, so you will be as well. And you ask of the man, can the man truly say to me, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ? This is a godly principle, friends. And for leaders in the church and would-be teachers in the church, we must ask ourselves then, are we, are we men of personal holiness? Are we men where we could say something of this sort, follow me, with fear and trembling I say it, follow me even as I follow Jesus Christ. This is a heavy thing for those who would be Teachers in the church, are we men who imitate Jesus so others may see something of Christ's work in us? Do you not understand, beloved, why the Apostle James said this? Not many of you should be masters. Not many of you should be teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. This is why, friends, this is a high, high calling. And so near the end of Christ's sermon, you think of who's here. Right? You think of the context. He had just called out his twelve. He had called out the twelve men who would be his apostles and the others who might be leaders of his church. And he emphasizes to them, if you will lead, you must epitomize Christly graces. That his teachers must not just know, but live out the word of God and the doctrine that is found in it. And so our theme is simply this, that the need of Christian leaders is a Christly character. The need of Christian leaders is a Christly character for the saying that my people's greatest need is my personal holiness is not meant to be aimed at the people of God, but aimed at the minister himself. It is a chastisement on himself, not on the people of God to constrain him to a personal and humble walk with the Lord. 
So with that, we're going to divide our time into two considerations to help us uh, identify godly leaders. And if God willing, and in every, uh, every Christian in some way has a, a charge here. And you're going to see that. All of us in some way are responsible for giving the words of life to another and to have a holy conduct. But first, godly masters are known by their sight. That's the first consideration. And second, godly masters known by their speech. So their sight and their speech. First then, godly masters known by their sight. In verse 39, And he spake a parable unto them. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Now, the Holy Ghost clearly wants you to understand that this is not physical blindness that he is talking of here. He says this is a parable, right? This is a parable. It is meant to illustrate spiritual truth. And what he's really speaking of is spiritual blindness in leaders who would lead God's people. That, those, uh, that only those who have a spiritual sight and sense are to be leaders of God's people. Otherwise, they're going to lead the blind into a ditch. Now, I want you to think about eyesight for a moment, boys and girls especially. Uh, what, is, what is eyesight? In a way, it is really simply this. It is the ability to see light. Right? That is what eyesight is. A man who is blind sits in darkness. A man who has sight can see. So what is spiritual sight? Because this is a parable. It is the ability to perceive and see the one who is called what? The light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. Uh, spiritual blindness, on the other hand, is the inability to see Jesus, who is the light of the world. You remember in Luke's fourth chapter, what did Jesus say when he opened up the scroll of Isaiah? He has come to open the eyes of the blind. This was his great work. Uh, these are those. He's come to open the eyes of those who have no sight and no fruition of God. Those who cannot see their sinfulness. Those who cannot see the danger of hell looming before them. Those who are blind to the fact that all of us, even me, have gone astray. Those blind that by the works of the law, no sinner will be justified in the sight of God. Those who cannot see that their sole hope is not their righteousness, which is called as filthy rags, but their sure hope is only in the sure mercies of God in Jesus. Those who are blind to the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Blind of their need to cast themselves entirely upon Jesus for mercy. There are men who would be leaders, beloved, who are blind to all of that and want to lead others along. And that is the danger that he is saying. And what they do is they bring ruin on themselves and they bring ruin on those who follow them. You remember in Matthew 23, Jesus Christ unleashed his, his great woes, his great seven woes on the Pharisees, calling them hypocrites seven times rather. And in one of those seven woes, he exclaimed, Woe unto you, ye blind guides. Blind guides. This is a connection here to this text. And where do blind guides lead us? Jesus says, into the ditch. Do you understand, beloved, why you need to carefully consider those who lead the people of God? Because he is speaking of the gravest ditch of all, which is hell. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourself. 
It's a solemn, solemn thing, friends. It is vital for your soul and mine to only follow men who follow Jesus Christ. Men who see the light of the gospel, who see the light of Jesus, who see the light of the world, a uh, word. You know, I was thinking of this this week. Many of us have come out of ministries, of so-called ministries rather, and ministers so-called who are really blind men. And I don't mean men who have differing interpretations maybe on secondary points of doctrine, important as every point of doctrine is, but I mean men who are fundamentally blind to Jesus and the true gospel. Men so blind that they preach a gospel that is no gospel at all. But what do we find of those who have light? The Lord says this, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no what in them? No light in them. Isaiah 8.20. So how do you know a man can see? Well, first of all, he perceives Jesus, right? But, but that's, on some level, maybe that's a bit shallow at first. You know, a lot of men say they follow Jesus. But the Bible says, to the law and to the testimony, he must follow the Jesus of the Bible. He must follow the Holy Scriptures. Uh, you know, a man who you must follow says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? This is the Psalm 119.105 says this. This is the kind of man you want, where his entire life is spent in the word of God. And the, the, the word is not just a, a light abstractly for the man, but it is a light for his feet. It is the path that he follows. And that is the kind of man that Jesus is saying we must follow. And so it is this book then, which is the path of those who would be Christian leaders. Why? Because if they are going to lead you, friends, you don't want the blind leading you into a ditch. What you want is a man who sees the light of the word leading you wherever the word of God takes you. And the word of God is inexorably going to lead you to Jesus. Christian masters, Christian teachers then are armed with this book and it fills the whole of their meditation. These are men who have been born again because the eyes of their understanding have been opened by the Holy Ghost, Ephesians 1.18. And so such men who are led by the Holy Spirit and armed with the word of God will point you to Jesus. They're men who always do what Paul says. that he, They pursue the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. All they seem to see is by the light of the word, Jesus Christ. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 8, 12. They follow Jesus and his light in the word. These men, these masters that you must follow, they preach up Jesus constantly. Having seen his light, they are captivated by it, and they point you to the light. They lead you to him. They lead you to heaven itself, to eternal life, not the ditch of hell. So a true leader of God is born again through the gospel. They see Jesus clearly and walk according to the light of his word. And now he warns you about men who are hypocrites. And I want you to understand why it is so vital that a teacher of God's people be not a hypocrite. Because insofar as a teacher is a preacher, he is not only to instruct us in the word of God intellectually, but to preach in this manner. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, 
exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Christian ministers are to rebuke you. They are to reprove you. And, you know, they are to expose to us our failings as the people of God that we may repent and turn to the Lord. What is important and vital then is that they not be hypocrites when they do so. Verses 41 and 42, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Let's consider this generally speaking, and not constrain ourselves to the ministers of the gospel. Because this applies to all Christians, of course, not just ministers or masters. And boys and girls, the imagery here is rather absurd if you imagine it, right? That your brother may be far off, right? And you see a tiny, tiny little speck in his eye there, right? And all along, you've got this big log sticking out of your eye that everybody around you, everybody around you can perceive, And you are hyper-focused on that person over there. And you see it so very clearly, though it might be a minuscule fault, even amplified perhaps in your eyes beyond what it ought to be. Yet, at the same time, you are a hypocrite. And that is absurd to all men. You must deal with that beam before you go and address others, is what he says. And this hypocrisy, right, if you think about it, is what made the Pharisees so utterly, utterly obnoxious in the sight of God and man. There's this pretense, right? This pretense of holiness in these men. A form of godliness that denies the power thereof. Consider how Jesus spoke of them. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, right? There are many woes that are laid on them as hypocrites. But listen to this. For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. I want you to see what they are doing here, right? There's this form of godliness. These very long prayers in the sight of all men. Oh, look at how holy I am. And at the same time, all men know they are devouring widows and they are doing all manner of ungodly and wicked, wicked things. There is such a great beam in their eye and at the same time they would try to keep sinners from coming to Christ to be forgiven. All they perceive, right, is, oh, there's that sinful woman who's coming to the Savior while the man who says what a sinner she is is the man who's devouring a widow's house. Hypocrisy. Isaiah prophesied of them, which say, stand by thyself. This is what the Pharisee says. Stand by thyself. Come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. And this is how the Lord says he sees them. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Isaiah 65.5. They keep sinners from the Lord saying, oh, well, I am holier than thou. When they needed to tell sinners, what you need to do, friend, is seek Christ and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Beloved, it is difficult to find anything Jesus despised more than religious hypocrisy. The woes are reserved for the hypocrites. 
in Matthew 23. And so the question I ask you, and it's really the Lord asking you, is your profession of faith an affront to God? Is your profession of faith an affront to God, a smoke in his nostrils? Is there such grievous, unrepented sin in you, but you are focused, hyper-focused maybe, on other men's faults? What you and I need to do is constantly examine our hearts against the word, friends, and repent of our own sins, and often you need to pray this godly prayer of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, that is, test me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, a man I I knew would often speak of glorious sermons that he had heard preached, He spoke of the moving things he had read in the Puritans, and he cited them well. And I would bring up a point, and he would say, and then this man said this and this, and what an amazing thing this is to consider of the Lord Jesus. And he often told others, he would give them advice, and he would see their faults and say, you must live your life in this particular way. And he sounded to so many people so very solemn and so very pious, And all the while, the man was an unrepentant fornicator. A fornicator. God is not mocked, friends. Numbers 32.23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. And so this man's sins came to light. And after much pleading from his session, he was excommunicated for being an unrepentant fornicator. A, A man who took the words of life and would tell others of their faults. And he himself was grievous of a sin that the Lord says, if not repentant of, uh, you are in the danger of hellfire. Each time a man like that committed fornication, all the while while saying he was a believer, his witness to every woman he committed fornication with was that Jesus is a minister of sin. All his pious talk was nonsense. And it is a stench in God's nostrils. No different than the Pharisee with his long prayer devouring a widow's house at the same time. And so is that you, friend? Is that you? Whatever your sin is, it's a grave thing to be an unrepentant sinner. Now, we're all sinners, right? I'm talking about high-handed sin that you're unrepentant of, that you follow and chase like the Pharisee. Religious hypocrisy is a grave sin. And I want you to think about this, if for no other reason than to consider this one thought, you who love Christ. Religious hypocrisy is awful because it is the good name of Jesus Christ that is blasphemed. Every Christian bears a testimony for God. You, believer, are a living testimony for God. And when you live as a hypocrite, the Bible says God's name is blasphemed through you. Romans 2 Art thou confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness? Now, where have you heard that? Here in our text in Luke. Are you confident that you are a leader, right? A guide of the blind, that you are a light. Here's what he says. An instructor of the, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou, therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, 
dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed through you, as it is written. If we have one care, beloved, if you have one care at all today, it must be that the name of your God is cherished and glorified and not blasphemed because of your ungodly hypocritical conduct. It is the honor and name of Jesus Christ. And if the thought of your conduct bringing dishonor on the Lord does not fill you with tears, friends, if you, that cannot keep you from hypocrisy. I fear, friend, that you do not know the Lord. Even informally, you know, they're talking about teachers. But even informally, some of us must stop telling others of Christ and doctrine until we deal with our own hearts. Some of us need to be less concerned with what everybody else in this world is doing until we have a greater worry about what we ourselves are doing before God's eyes. And how great and elevated hypocrisy is then for ministers and elders. You think of this, ministers are in no position, no position at all to rebuke others if they do not deal with their own sins first. Think of it. And you've probably faced this and you've probably thought this yourself if a man has come and rebuked you. Either he rebukes you from the preaching or in your own walk. Uh, No congregant wants an elder to chastise them if they know he himself walks in sin. If a man is hot-tempered or ill-mannered, they say, Who is he to tell me about my sins? If a man cannot manage his own home, who is he to tell me about my children and my wife? So think about it, elders. This is the natural reaction our people are going to have if we are not humbled men before the Lord ourselves. We must resolve to be those who are uh, repentant and godly. But all of you have a duty to admonish one another when you see sin in each other. And as that is your duty, none of us at all can be hypocrites. You want to share Christ with someone. You want to show them the words of life. You yourself must not be a hypocrite, lest your witness blasphemes God. Now, I want to deal with this on the other side. When you are rebuked by someone, it is your duty and mine as well not to think about all the ways this person might be a hypocrite. Let's not take this the other wrong way. Your immediate thought, now you're going to become the man here, is your immediate thought can often be to think hyper-focus on their failings. Oh, this person is a hypocrite. You're prone anyway to make motes in other people's eyes, beams in your own seeing anyway. But your duty when rebuked, even by the world's greatest hypocrite, is to consider whether they are speaking the word of God in truth. Test yourself. Receive the rebuke and test it. Their duty is not to be a hypocrite. Your duty is to see if there is some truth in the matter. Well, that then will conclude this heading. Godly masters see Christ. They walk by the light of his word and they see without hypocrisy. And so next, let's consider godly masters known by their speech. Verses 43 and 44, rather. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, 
And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Now, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us that he intends this text to be applied to teachers. Right? He prefaces in the Sermon on the Mount, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits, and then so on, what we have here in verses 43 and 44. That's Matthew 7, verses 15 and 16. So, beloved, what Christ wants you to discern is this. Uh, Is the man I follow a a ravenous wolf instead of an under-shepherd of God? He says many, many wolves are clothed in the garb of sheep, or perhaps garbed in the... the, uh, in that of an under-shepherd. Many are clothed in those things which appear outwardly to be good and true. But their aim is this, to draw you to themselves and devour you. That's what Paul warned the Ephesian elders, that among them men would arise up, whose sole aim is to draw the disciples away to themselves. So if the godly minister says, follow me as I follow Christ, the false shepherd, the wolf, says, follow me, stop. <laughs> right? There is no follow Christ, follow me, period. And that's how you have cults. Right? Beloved, so much misery has come to God's people because they will not hear what Jesus had to say. Beware. Beware of false prophets. This is not a hypothetical danger, in other words. This is a real danger. And how will you know who they are? He says, by their fruit. He says that trees of a certain kind produces fruit after its own kind. Boys and girls, he says that figs, right, do not come from a thorn bush. You know this. He says grapes do not come from bramble bushes or or prickly shrubs. He says the nature of the tree produces fruit after the nature of the tree. So servants of the Lord then, if they are born again by the word and the spirit, their lives will produce good fruit that makes it evident that they are new creatures, that they are not wolves. The fruit of their lives is godliness, showing holiness to the Lord. This is one reason Paul told Timothy, lay hands suddenly on no man. Because it is the fruit of the man's life, his heart, not just his mind, must be closely observed. One of the great follies of the church is the rash ordination of men for service without observing their lives over time. Instead, the church is often blinded by a man's charisma, how well they speak or how they entertain us. And that is how the church ends up with ungodly men like Mark Driscoll, because the man, the man has the ability to captivate an audience, and he speaks so well. But an examination of the man's heart would have shown those seeds in it that produce the destruction of that congregation. In our circles, let's consider us a little bit more severely than others. In the Presbyterian world, sometimes we seek men who have a knack for theology, men who hold all the right doctrines, Strict subscriptionists to our standards. But they may well be unconverted men. 
Friends, unconverted men can articulate orthodoxy. This is a solemn truth. Don't doubt it. Many, many are the brilliant men who have been deposed by church courts because of moral failings. Reprobate Judas. Think of here. Who's in the audience right now listening to this? Jesus. Judas is sitting right there, friends. For three years, Judas taught orthodoxy before he betrayed our Lord. He was listening to the sermon just as you are. Your presence here, your mere presence, my presence here, my preaching does not mean that automatically we are born again. Of Judas, Jesus said this. Think of the solemn words. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. A reprobate man who it would have been better for that he had never been born for three years could articulate orthodoxy. Consider the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3. A bishop then must be blameless. These words mean things, friends. And it means what it means, blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. These are all the fruit of a good converted heart. The man is blameless in his conduct. He is vigilant, vigilant over his own soul as well as his flock. Yes, he is apt to teach and must know good doctrine. Yes, we never disregard that. But he is also sober, of good behavior, hospitable, not given to wine. He's not a drunkard, in other words. He is not a striker. He is not greedy. He is patient with other men. He is not a brawler. He's not always picking fights with other men all the time. He is not covetous. He rules his own home well. He is not a man filled with pride. These are the men, these are the leaders you must follow and select when elections which are coming up in this congregation come up. These are the kinds of men we elders, Elder Silva, must be in the face of God. But all these moral characteristics Paul spoke of are characteristics that every Christian must cultivate. They're heightened in the elder. Now you think about this now with the qualifications of the elder, right? And the doctrine of Christ in verse 40. It is heightened in the elder because of this. The disciple is not above his master, but every one that is perfect shall be as his master. In other words, if we want our people to be blameless, to have a good reputation, to be vigilant, sober, and so on, those who lead God's people must exemplify those graces that they would see them in us and pursue it in themselves. And the primary area, and this is utterly convicting, friends, that Jesus says godly fruit shows forth from our heart is our mouth. Verse 45b, for of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. You need to think very carefully, friends, 
Whatever comes out of your mouth reflects your heart. And don't excuse yourself when you say, I'm biting my tongue right now. That has already gone too far. It has already come into your mouth. In other words, the heart has to be right. If yours is your heart and your mouth, then, which follows, is born again, your mouth will pour out the fruit of the Spirit. Kind words, humble words, unprovoking words, the truth spoken in love, words of benevolence, words filled with the knowledge of Christ. A man's mouth will in fact be this, as he reflects men like John the Baptist who said, Christ must increase and I must decrease. A man's mouth will be less about himself and more about Jesus Christ as well. That the man's mouth, which reflects a heart after God, will be all about God. But if bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking with all malice and pride and self pour out of a man, we see the fruit of an unconverted heart. And you find that the state of your heart is reflected in that. Your tongue is a barometer, children of God, that measures how right your heart is with God. Beloved, I want to note how important this is to the Lord. Three times at least in his ministry, he repeats this text. The Sermon on the Mount here and in Matthew chapter 12. And he repeats it after the Pharisees blaspheme the Holy Ghost. He finds this very important. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So that's been the same. But now he adds this, But I say unto you, that every idle word that man shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Matthew twelve thirty three through 37 What a solemn, solemn warning that is, friends. Every idle word that comes out of your mouth, the Lord will judge. Every idle word. Your mouth, insofar as it reflects the condition of your heart before God, condemns you or justifies you. Even, even, beloved, think of this, your idle words. Maybe the reason he says that is because especially your idle words reflect what your heart is. You say these things without care and thought, and so there is no filter there. And so it is an immediate connection to your heart, what you say idly. That is who you are, unfiltered. You know, in my old job, uh, my team that I led would say all kinds of, because I was working in the entertainment industry, my team would say all kinds of filthy and vile things all the day. But I, when I walked in, when I walked into the room, their speech would clean up and uh, they would start to talk um, as you would imagine a man ought to talk. Now, maybe not of the Lord, but just even in their regular speech about ordinary things. And I find that the same thing happens when men know I'm a pastor now. And when I walk into the room, even Christian people, suddenly men and women start to act and speak as if they're more sanctified than they really are. Even though just a moment ago, they might have been speaking folly. But friends, you know what's grievous about that? I am no one. I am nothing. No one is justified before God by what they say before me. No. 
You need to take care for every idle word you speak because the Lord sees it and the Lord looks into the heart. Now, you you need to not misunderstand what the Lord says here. Justification is not by speech, but by grace through faith. But the product of justification by faith uh, and that you might know that you are justified by faith is your tongue, your heart and your tongue reflect it. A minister once preached on a revival that took place in Scotland in a town of coal miners who, as you might imagine in that profession, they're not exactly men of the cleanest tongue. But he said that when revival broke out, their speech was transformed so suddenly by the Holy Spirit that now their beasts of burden no longer understood them. They no longer could understand their commands. Their speech had been so filthy for so long that the animals had to be retrained. All the animals understood were curse words. But their born-again heart produced a transformed mouth. And even the animals could recognize it, friends. That is the power of God to turn a heart. But it, you, would be, you would be solely mistaken, sorely mistaken if you thought that his speech governs just speech to men and of men. Because the context of Matthew 12, as I said, concerns our speech of God. Jesus was speaking of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. And what I want to remind you, congregation, is that speech that takes the name of God irreverently is the absolute worst speech that there is. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Why? For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That is the third commandment of God. And so the product of a reborn heart is speech not just that is not vain of God, using God's name flippantly or even a minced oath, like imagining that we don't know what you're doing when you say gosh instead of God. No, the product of a reborn heart is not just uh, uh, putting away vain speech of God, but really it is a product that uh, it produces high and lofty, lofty speech of God that is high and elevated. In fact, to the reborn heart, it seems as if the Lord forms the backbone of every thought and uh, that proceeds out of the mouth of the believer. The speech of the believer reflects the great commandments, love for God and love for neighbor. The mouth is transformed. So when they speak, it is according to this rule, and you must follow this rule. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Ephesians 4.29. So is that your speech, child of God? A putting away of corrupt communication, but also speaking that which builds up, which is what edify means, boys and girls. Uh, that which ministers grace to those who hear you. How will it begin? It's not going to begin by you mustering it up by your flesh. It must begin in the heart. The problem is the natural man has no thought of God. His thought is on himself. His thought is on his pleasures. His thought is on his own desires. But those who have a heart after God, reborn by the Spirit, delight themselves also in the Lord. Psalm 37.4, and that's the condition of their heart. And if out of the heart the mouth speaks, then the mouth is going to reflect that delight. 
Their heart is constantly, sweetly meditating on the Lord, and their mouth reflects it. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Psalm 104, verse 34. Uh, The godly man or woman says, Let my mouth, O God, be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. Psalm 71, verse 8. You remember the remnant that we considered in Malachi's day. You remember the remnant in Malachi's day, in Malachi 3.16. This is what remained of the people of God. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Those who think on the, God, on the Lord all the time, what they do is they speak to one another of the Lord. They speak of God. Young people learn that now. Speak to one another of God on the Sabbath day especially. Speak to one another of the things the Lord has done. Let your speech reflect your love and adoration for Jesus Christ. Then what do you think every idle word that proceeds from your mouth will be? You will not have to bite your tongue. Instead, your tongue would freely flow with the things of God, of God himself, of Christ and his glory. And the Lord will reward you, child of God. He says he even has a book. Not that he has to write it down to remember it himself. He forgets nothing. But that you might see how, how much he rewards those who have a thought of himself and speak of him. This is a thing that is left undone so much in the church that he says, I will have to write a book to remember those few who will do it. This is something we must do, friends. I want to say, when it comes to the tongue, you need to hear the warning of the word. If any man among you seem to be religious, right? And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is of what use? Is vain. Vain. James one twenty six. Do you get it, child of God? There are many of us that seem to be religious, but we are deceived. We have to all ask ourselves, all of us, Do I seem religious? Am I deceived? Is my religion vain? Find out by considering your heart and your tongue. Do I speak? Oh, what was said of Jesus? No man hath ever spoken as this man spake. Do men say that? Not because I have anything profound to say, but all I speak of is Christ and the things of God. Or do I speak as those deceived? And for our age, I want to remind you of this. Christ governs all our speech. Whether it is written, it is posted online, or it is spoken. All of it. This is a necessary point in a day when we can express ourselves swiftly to billions of people by just typing or tapping on our phone. And the whole earth can behold what is in your heart. Consider your speech online. But I'll also say, consider your speech in private communications as well when you think nobody else but you and your your innermost enclave know what you're saying. At the end of it, friends, Christ's ethical teachings here are actually rather very simple. And you can sum it up like this. The Christian must be a godly man or a godly woman. It is that simple. Your knowledge of the faith is not just in your mind, and it's not just in your catechism, but you must experientially know the doctrines of the word. Titus 2.10 says we must what? 
adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. We must adorn the teachings of God in all things. Our Lord Jesus Christ, if you think of him this way, is a walking and talking picture of this book. That is what he is. He is the word of God made flesh. His conduct at all points reflected the doctrine of the word. He did not speak, to use the colloquialism, he did not speak hot air. And neither must we. True servants of the Lord are gripped by the word. And they are changed by the Spirit of the Lord. Pernicious in the Reformed community right now, especially in those who are newly Reformed, who don't understand Reformed piety, is this idea that our faith is simply knowing the right truths. That if we know the right things about God and our duty to God, then we are saved. No. The heart must reflect the truth. We are to adorn the doctrine of God in all areas of life. We must be those this is true of, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is not a stagnant faith we have. 2 Corinthians 3.18 shows us that. We behold, if you know the doctrine of God, you are beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are truly by faith beholding the glory of Jesus Christ by his word, you are going to be conformed to it. The love of God is not an abstraction to those who are truly born again. They know the love of God. They don't just articulate it. For them, the heinousness of sin is not just an abstract point of knowledge, but they truly feel it. They are wounded by their own sin. And when they see idolatry, as Paul did in Athens, their spirit is provoked by it. More than that, when they perceive idolatry in their own heart, they cry out, Oh, wretched man that I am. And they also cry out, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Knowing I am not a man or woman righteous myself, but made so by Jesus. These are the, uh, the properties of the converted heart beloved of God. Jesus says, by their fruit, you will know them. This is the kind of fruit in such a man. We have three men in this congregation who are seeking ordained office of one kind or another. We are not to rush into laying hands. We are to examine their conduct and their lives. To be a servant of the Lord, one who leads God's people and teaches them is a very high calling. Have care in who you choose as your leader's congregation. Uh, I'll repeat again the words of our Lord to emphasize this. Everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. If we desire a good heart, friends, we must follow those who have one themselves. For it is the Lord's design that we imitate those insofar as they imitate him. And all of those of us who serve, like myself, you have to understand this too, are men who are not perfected yet. That is by design though. And I want you to understand this. Because if the man was perfected, he would never model for you the graces of faith and repentance. What you need to see in your leaders are men who are constantly humbling themselves before the Lord. That you would model that in them. Not their sin but the humbleness that comes as they, they, they confess their sin before God and man. 
We should know, those of us who are leaders, that we are not yet arrived. That's what Paul says. I do not count myself as having arrived, but I pursue the prize. And maybe that's another reason that godly leaders are not perfected in this life. Because you need to watch them pursue the prize, which is Christ. And imitate that in them. And Because the men you want also are men who will say, only imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. And in every way where I don't, let me point you to him. Let me show him to you because he is the perfect master, not me. I am a sinner constantly seeking the grace of God. Imitate him above all. Those are the men that we desperately need as under shepherds. Not, what did Paul say, lords over God's heritage, but being in samples or examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5 verse 3. Men seeking office, be such examples to the flock. It's a high calling to be such a man. But I want to end with just a few applications to all of us. All of us will have callings to lead others, especially to Christ. Husbands, you need to be men of this sort, desperately so, desperately so, so that your wife has someone to look at as a model of Jesus Christ. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. What is that but imitation of Jesus Christ? Men, wash your wives with the water of the word. Your children as well, fathers, must, must see a man that imitates Jesus as well. Men, you must give your family a portrait of Christ to imitate in your godly conduct in your speech. You need to send them to Jesus, not just with your words, but with your whole life and being. Wives, if your husband is not what he ought to be, and many of us are not, the Lord says your godly imitation of Christ may win them. You see how this is vital too. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Mothers, your children, especially your daughters, need you to model godliness for them. They desperately need that. Young ladies, Lord willing, as you look towards marriage, choose a man Choose a man that is a spiritual leader. Someone who is not perfect. No, even your own pastors and elders are not perfect. But someone who seeks to be godly and Christ-like. Do not, do not be entranced by the way the world looks for future spouses. Ask yourself, and, and for yourself rather, maybe ask yourself, are my cultivating those graces the women of God are to cultivate, discreet, chaste, keepers of the home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word, see it again, why? That the word of God be not blasphemed. Always comes back to that, beloved. Young men, your calling is to be a godly guide to Christ if you are married in the future. Not a man, oh, how you young men need to hear this, and maybe us older men too, you do not need to be, must not be rather, a man who is spending his time goofing off as young men are prone to do but to be serious-minded men for Jesus' sake, ready to care for one of his precious daughters. A man 
who can lay down his life for another, a man who knows the Lord experientially, sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern, see this again, a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is the contrary, contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. That is the calling of men in Titus 2, verses 6 through 8. Be a man that spends time with the Lord, being transformed from glory to glory. And outside of a family, because many of us might be called to be single, you are all called to teach and admonish one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. All of you need to model the Lord. And all of this, as you have heard, is solely the product of your conversion. It is the fruit of what Jesus calls a good heart, a new heart, that new heart of flesh. This is not the work of the flesh. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. This is the work of God. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your hypocrisy, your evil thoughts, your mouth, even if you are now biting your tongue constantly and you do not know Jesus, you must be born again. Take this conviction and run to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Don't clean up your mouth first. Don't clean up your heart. It is impossible. But instead, flee to Jesus, and he will give you clear sight, and he will give you a heart with good speech after he forgives your sins. Receive Jesus, my friends. He has paid on the cross. You think of this. He has talked about the damnation our mouths produce, and all of us are worthy of that damnation. Not a single one of us cannot say that our idle words do not condemn us. And you think of this on the cross then. Our Lord Jesus Christ paid for the condemnation for every idle word his people have ever spoken that bring them ruin, and he has suffered for it. He has taken the damnation we deserve for our ungodly hearts and ungodly mouths. But that, that great gift is only for those who believe on him. Trust on the Lord today and gain this good heart. So I do believe, friends, as we wrap up, Jesus has vindicated that saying that is attributed to McShane. Ministers must say, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. It is a ter- As your pastor, it is an utterly terrifying thought to me to hear that all that are made perfect, all that are perfected are as their master. What an awful thing that is for a pastor to hear. A convicting thing of thinking of your lives connected to mine in that way. What that does is it spurs me all the more to seek out Jesus for my failings. And whatever my failings are, beloved, look past them and look to Jesus Christ who alone is perfect. And may God help us all be transformed from glory to glory as we behold the glory of the Lord. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the gospel, for without the gospel hope, there there is no hope for us all. For all of us have run afoul and continue to run afoul of the teachings of our Lord. But Lord, we pray that any here who do not know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been convicted by their sin by the Holy Ghost, who has come to convict men 
uh, of their unrighteousness. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit would not only uh, convict them, but draw them to Christ that they may be forgiven and receive that good heart of flesh. Oh, Father, for all of us, help us all model Christ. Help us all seek out leaders that would lead us to Christ. And may all leaders here, all elders here, Father, and those who might be elders in the future, may we all be men who are after God's own heart. Father, help all of us produce the fruit of the gospel in our lives. Not that we might be saved by it, but that we might bring great glory. For if the name of God is blasphemed through those who do evil works and call uh, and, and have the name of Christ about them, Oh, our hope, Father, is that the name of God would be glorified by them who seek to glorify you in thought, word, and deed. May you, O God, be glorified among everyone here in this body. We pray and ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.